Amahi Maioha Kia Koto. I'd like to welcome all of you here in person today and all of the people that are on live stream to today's panel titled Not Today, Can You Decolonize an Art Gallery? Big question. Today's discussion is part of the Douse Speaker Series presented by the Douse Foundation, a series of talks which celebrate and reflect on the past 50 years of remarkable ideas at the Douse. Throughout the programme of events this year, we'll delve into thinking about our enduring and evolving relationships and some of the more challenging moments in our history, the stories behind some of the unusual and precious taonga in our significant collections, the ways in which the bricks and mortar of the building has changed in response to developments in art and exhibition practice, as well as our foundational and enduring relationship with Aotearoa Studio Craft. A lineup of some of Aotearoa's most engaging personalities, including Art World Insiders, writers, comedians and experts will join us as we trace our evolving identity through discussion, exploration and provocation. Uh, my name is Carl Chittam and I am the director of the Dallas Art Museum. I'm not sure why I was reading that. I do know what my job is. Uh, and I'm also the head of arts and culture for Hutt City Council. I'd like to welcome our very special guests today. We've got Nigel Burrell and Paul Y. Cairns, who are, we're going to break from tradition and uh, they're going to introduce themselves. So I'll pass over to Nigel. Kia ora, Carl. Uh, kia ora, everyone. It's, it's awesome to be here and to have a packed room. No expectation, but um, really cool. And I think it speaks to um, everyone's interest in engaging in the topic. So it's, it's great to be with you all. Um, ko Nigel Barella ho, nō tauranga moana o. Uh, ko ngai tarangi ngāti rangi nui me te whakatohia o ku iwi. Uh, ko mauau te maunga, ko taku te mute waka, ko paparo te marae. Um, it's lovely to be here. I um, am Nigel Burrell, a freelance curator, writer, <laughs> uh, educator and artist. And um, my, I suppose, most current project is Toy 2 Toy Order, uh, Contemporary Māori Art on at the Auckland Art Gallery at the moment. And uh, as of recently, and I think this is the second time I've said it publicly, uh, the former curator Māori Art at the Auckland Art Gallery, Toy Tamaki, and just a pleasure to be with you all today to have a conversation around this really engaging, important topic. Kia ora. Uh, tēnā tātou, he mihi nunu ki a koutou ka hatsua, uh, he mihi nunu ki a koe e hoa, Carl, um, kōrua tōku um, matua keke, um, <laughs> uh, me koutou hoki tēnā koutou. Uh, ko pua waikens tōku ingoa nō tauranga moa nō ahau, oki. Um, he iramatua hau o tēnei rangatira, engari <laughs> uh, um, o tōku whanaunga ia. Um, uh, yeah, hello, I'm Puawai. I also hail from Tauranga Moana. Uh, Nigel, I call my cousin, and I'm, for the third time, he is actually uh, above me on the tree. He's my mother's cousin, so he's my uncle, uh, but we call each other cousin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maori styles. <laughs> I work at Te Papa. Um, I've worked there for a very long time um, in various guises. Primarily in my most happiest period has been as a curator, but curator of Mātauranga Māori, uh, which I did for around about eight years, and just recently have gone into an executive position working for Courtney um, at Te Papa at that table. Um, and I'm grappling with what that, <laughs> with how that feels. 
which may spill out in this kōrero in a nice way. <laughs> uh, but I'm very honoured to be here, uh, in particular to talk to the, the kaupapa that is decolonisation with all of its um, many facets. Um, I'm also really appreciative and got really nervous hearing about how many, how many people were coming to this kōrero. I think by virtue people are coming to listen to Nigel, uh, but still made me really nervous because of the incredible breadth of the kaupapa that is deco and the meaningfulness of it. It's not something you can speak about lightly or flippantly. Um, and I just came from listening to Moana Jackson and all of the authors of Imagining Decolonization at um, Unity Books the other night, and that also had a jam-packed room. Um, so I, it, I can tell people are hungry to hear about this. They want to understand, they want to grapple with it, which I really appreciate as well. Mm. So kia ora koutou. Kia ora. Kia ora um, For all those people out in TV land, um, and everybody in the room as well. Uh, just a little bit of the formatting of today. So we're going to dive in the not too distant future into some big questions uh, straight away. Um, and then uh, we'll see how the discussion unfolds and then we'll probably take questions towards the end. Uh, the session is time for 90 minutes, but we have decided that if we run out of things to say or um, the room looks bored, we might stop early. Um, <laughs> So uh, those people that are live streaming, if you do have questions, if you could send them through to uh, the live stream Facebook uh, link. Okay, uh, before we begin, I just wanted to contextualise uh, the use of the title, or more around the title of the talk, which references the phrase, not today, dot, dot, dot. Um, this phrase comes from an action of Totoko for Nigel at the opening of his exhibition Toitu Toyota at Auckland City Art Gallery. Uh, participants of the action wore a badge which said NB, which I'm assuming stands for Nigel Burrell. I'm assuming too. Uh, not today, coloniser. While many people uh, will be aware of the context of that action and we'll have heard about uh, Nigel's resignation and the surrounding circumstances. Um, it's important to kind of talk about that as the catalyst for the title uh, for today's uh, talk. But what we were interested in uh, thinking about with that title was interrogating a little bit more uh, terms and notions of time uh, for Māori and agency for Māori. So that's why we've used Not Today. Um, so, we're just going to get straight into it, because that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, to get the conversation started, we're going to start off with the title. Uh, so, this is open to either of you. And uh, also, because there's only three of us, um, it may be that I jump in as well. I'm not just a facilitator, I'm a uh, corroborator. I do have ideas too. Oh. Um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, so the title of the um, talk is Can You Decolonise an Art Gallery? We can expand that out a little bit to Can You Decolonise an Art Institution or an Institution of Cultural Heritage? Um, can you do that? Over to you guys. Um, I think it's a great provocation and it's a great question. And it's, not, it's one that I don't know the answer to, uh, to be honest. 
Um, but what it does um, say to me and bring to mind is a range of other questions and, and uh, considerations that I think uh, our cultural and art institution and spaces should be places for. And I've written them down so that I make sure that I get the message across. Um, for me, they should be a, a safe, safe spaces for uncomfortable conversations for all of us. Uh, they should be spaces where we can agree to disagree. Uh, they should be uh, a safe space where we can unpack, intersect and disrupt colonial structures. Uh, they should be uh, spaces where we can all be brave enough to embrace change when parties are demanding it should take place. Uh, they should be spaces where we can celebrate our uh, differences and our diverse points of view. And they should be places where we can celebrate cultural identity and all its diversity and texture. And I read that out purposely because I think with a really um, loaded uh, question like that, that you know, we, should, we should work towards unpacking it with sensitivity, with an open mind, but with a um, progressive point of view. And um, to me, that doesn't mean to say we don't have hard conversations or deal with some of the sticky issues related to it, but we should always be uh, open to exploring that together and in a bicultural way, or in a way that acknowledges that diversity of vision and thought. Um, both within Māori and outside of that as well. Um, so for me, those are, those are some of the starting points for you know, um, questioning and uh, approaching this idea of decolonising an art institution. And we'll talk more about that as we go through those questions, Carl. Yeah, but for me, that's the starting point. Um, in a short, no. I don't think you can decolonise an art gallery or museum if, and this is where it starts to get all fleshed out, if the power structures and the allocation of power within those organisations exist as they exist today because they were set up on a colonial foundation. So until you can actually rip apart the power networks, the sewer systems in which um, power and influence is transmitted across these organisations and it's not just above ground, it's below ground. Until you completely overhaul those, you will never attain a state of decolonisation. You may have temporary mitigations by virtues of the efforts of Māori and Pacific people who work within these organisations to try and, try and create a better context for themselves. But they're always working against a system that is still dependent on those old sewer systems of power. So I think you can't do it because nobody wants to rebuild the sewer system. You can do it if you blow the whole thing up <laughs> <laughs> and you start with the indigenous base. So um, what I've seen over and over again are... Uh, temporary systemic amendments, um, interventions by Indigenous people, like I'm saying, to try and make things less harmful and a bit better. But it always has a casualty. There's always an injury. There's always a wound. Um, because you're working against a different system of thinking that is colonial. So um, 
I'm, I'm quite, I'm, I've got a very cynical view of galleries and museums um, talking about decolonisation because I feel like it's like becoming subsumed into the theory of new museology that um, this is our new, this is our new theory, our new theory, theoretical framework that we work within. No, you're bullshitting. Um, I, because they won't give up the power exchange underneath the ground. Yeah, so that's where I sit. Um, and it's, it's not a very comfortable space either. Mm -hmm. And it's further reinforced, though, by fact of what has happened to my cousin. I don't want to make a matter of you, sorry, I guess. But, <laughs> Bo, one of the biggest shows ever produced, the one that all art exhibitions from now on will be compared to. And what did it take to have that sucker staged? What was the sacrifice? What was the thing laid at the altar so it was able to happen? So in a decolonial system, would you have had that casualty? Oh, well, I don't think you would have. You might have had another. Other things, but not the sacrifice of the Māori curator. So, no. So if, you, if we kind of put those two things together, so there's those kind of strategies you've talked about, all those, yeah. those um, things that signal change, and then there's this notion of not being able to decolonise what are effectively Western institutions. Mm. Um, how, what are some kind of ways to navigate that moving forward that doesn't require someone to um, resign from their position or doesn't require a protest? Um, are there ways to do that? Or do you think that we're already in a situation where we're in opposition? I don't know. I think I can only speak from my aspiration of how I want to see the world and the art institution that I want to be involved in. And, um, you know, just let's remember, resigning is an empowered statement in itself. True. It's not being done to me. I'm making the move. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to look at that, that debacle and that scenario, but there's also some home truths there around um, why we make those decisions. But, you know, back to that question, to me, it's, um, it's about coming in an institution like this in our art institutions and demanding that a Māori worldview be present. It's demanding that um, I centre my understanding of art knowledge in a Māori worldview that embraces my cultural beliefs, that speaks to a larger collective that speaks to um, its relationship to art as I know it. And you might think that's quite an elemental, you know, straightforward, pragmatic aspiration to have. But of course we know that the, the struggle and the, the fight of trying to get visibility for that type of uh, presentation and trajectory with institutions is where the battle is. And it's usually this combative one around different ways of understanding and, and knowing and what knowledge represents in terms of not just art, but culture. And so often you find yourself, you know, preoccupied with that debate and uh, that ground. But at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's symptomatic of art, it's symptomatic of visibility for Māori agency, Māori authority in our institutions. And look, within the contemporary space, if you have only two institutions in the country that by role and designation have a contemporary Māori curator 
helping tell some of that story in a mandated way, then we need to maybe be more scrutinising of that. You know, um, the curator uh, Māori art role at the Auckland Art Gallery came on board as a an, an a assistant curator role in 1999, and that was Nahiraka Mason, and that morphed into a full-time curatorial position working with Māori and Indigenous art. It's now 2021, and we still only have two roles in the, in the country that are geared to helping foster and driving that story. For sure, it's happening in other institutions in other ways, but in a mandated way, why is that the case? And we should all be invested in that, trying to find out that answer. It shouldn't be just the mighty curators who are trying to grapple with that and deal with that and advocate for it. Um, being bicultural means that we all take responsibility for why that predicament is and demand that there's change. And, you know, that's, that's the power of working biculturally. But you can only do that when everyone wants to, uh, uh, is, is committed to that journey and that path. Mm. And often in institutions like this, the Māori curator is walking that path on their own. And they're seeking their allies and their, their uh, collaborators where, where they um, uh, put their hand up or see fit or, uh, or it's part of their role or their own aspiration. And that can be quite hit and miss. So I think um, the more that we can actually own that, that predicament together um, and let the mighty curator lead it, um, the better off we will be culturally to see ourselves as a more cohesive whole. Can, so that leads to another question. So sure it does. <laughs> There's so many questions in there. But... Um, the, uh, this is one that's come up multiple times and I'm going to kind of ask it to Puawai, which is what are the benefits of having designated Māori roles, particularly curatorial roles? Um, or is it, is it something we should aspire to? Um, I think it's there by dint of sure representation within the ranks. Um, so securing representation to work on a particular collection, especially in my context, is important and has only come about, I believe, because of Te Māori, um, where Te Māori was the proof to the equation that you needed Māori doing the selecting and the caring for taonga. And I'm thinking around the words that Maina McKenzie also wrote around having community engagement and input and leadership with taonga while you're selecting and creating interpretation on top. So it's about trying to have that critical mass to build the stories for Māori to then find themselves reflected and be able to engage with it rather than what would have been the previous model, which is working within an ethnographical, ethnological perspective where the outsider, or what you might call like the intimate outsider, who has worked within Māori communities, um, then presents their detached and scientific view of this community. So it was a shift, and I believe that having specific designated positions has been the response to what I believe Te Māori did. Um, and I think we stand on the shoulders of giants in that regard. All of the battles that and, and discussion that Komatua and Kuya and art history experts have been having prior to someone like me going into the role, it hasn't just emerged, you know, it's been one that's been um, kind of 
secure it out and pad it out and try to make the best of what was um, what the context was at that time. But I do believe there are downsides to it because you are creating positions in response to colonial classifications of knowledge. Māori knowledge does not stay confined to our taonga. So me being a, like I was a taonga curator, Māori collection curator, Māori knowledge runs the breadth of all of the tangible material and intangible material that is in this, in this land and in the world. So therefore, we should be running Māori curatorial presence right across the breadth of anywhere where there are posits of knowledge and a requirement to interpret it. And where Māori are generating. Māori are not just generating as carvers and weavers and blah, 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 blah. They are generating uh, on a continuum that runs through those classifications. And that's where this um, confinement starts running into problems. That's when those fiercely guarded borders between the classifications become um, not, they don't become very friendly. Um, and then you run into kind of the modern HR rules where you're not allowed to create you're not allowed to bring Māori into a position because they are Māori. The position has to be created to make sure that it's specifically about a Māori set of skills. Um, so in that, that also creates another layer, another barrier to ensuring that representation within a system like an art gallery or a museum um, is a lot more sophisticated and nuanced. You have to go back to we are creating a Māori position with Māori outcomes. So I get really heartened when I see people who are in roles that may not actually have the name Māori in their title, but I also know that it's usually temporary. They will go in, do beautiful work, either move on or feel like I need to move on um, and do a radical refusal, like, can't see, I'm out. Um, then who are they replaced by? All of that gain gets lost. So I think that comes back to the notion of this being a very temporary system of concessions unless we have the designated Māori positions. Um, but I find that confining. So if we weren't in, this, in a radical new world where we weren't trying to change existing frameworks like an art gallery that we're sitting in currently, um, which is based on a Western model, if we're not trying to do that, we're starting from scratch, what would uh, that look like if we were going to create an institution from scratch, which was a te ao Māori perspective on the world? I mean, I think um, I'm quite comfortable living in a bicultural country and acknowledging the diversity of what that means and the challenge of what that presents. Um, but having said that, I'm also really... Um, most um, focused on uh, embedding a Māori worldview in a way that is more visible, because I feel like um, we often um, we often look abroad to explain what's happening here way too much, and we're just so enamoured with still the offshore idea to actually save us from things that we can explain and tell more profoundly ourselves as a people. And I think we've got to get over being so reticent about owning that space, both collectively but also for allowing Māori to 
occupy it, to take that lead and to show our uniqueness. Um, I, feel, I feel like Toy 2, uh, part of its success is because it's unapologetically owning space about a worldview, about uh, the place of Māori art and the place of Māori knowledge. And the funny thing is that that uh, provocation and that statement is generous enough to say, actually, there's room for all of us to see ourselves related to that idea. And I think that's what people are responding to, is that they're seeing the uniqueness of that vision, not just for Māori, but for how we might understand ourselves as a people. So I feel like, as New Zealanders, you know, it's time to actually be brave enough to sort of, and be more, uh, to look a bit more with scrutiny um, across the board about what makes us uniquely us and owning that. And for me, it's mighty art and it's the place of mighty culture in this country. Mm. And um, I know that there are lots of allies and there's lots of non mighty that agree with that idea. So how do we mobilise that to make sense of it moving forward? And if we say that's what we're about, then how do we want to own that? And how do we want to make that manifest in our institutions in ways that are meaningful and not tokenistic, but uh, transformative? And, you know, let's sit in the aspiration, you know, basket for a little bit longer. Um, if we didn't sit in the aspiration basket, we wouldn't have shows like Toy 2 with 111 artists occupying the whole gallery. And it's because we have to have the tenacity to dream what those horizons look like and to own that space that we want to manifest, whether it's for Māori art or whether it's for New Zealand art. And um, that's the conversation I'm interested in being part of. Mm. And it's already happening. So we sort of, it's happening whether we want to get on board or not. And um, well, my suggestion is that we get on board and actually um, see the profound future that we can actually manifest together. Mm. What are your thoughts? Uh, I like, um Decolonisation has kind of always been um, a, a, a term or a, a theory that I've had quite a great issues with. I describe it as if somebody keeps referring back to my ex. Forty <laughs> years later, I'm all about my ex. I was like, and everything I generate, oh, it must be because you had your, your ex. <laughs> so that's why I've always felt like un, uh, reluctantly tethered to this thing that um, my ancestors navigated and, and encountered and I continue to encounter. I didn't like the idea of my destiny being tethered to that. And then when um, we had the great Mona Jackson come and speak, um, come and speak to my team, the Mātauranga Māori curators, and he told us that he also did not like decol and he was also not a fan of the word indigenization. He talked about Māorification. And that all of a sudden... I've written about this because it was just so liberating mm. um, that it was about severing Māori away from constantly thinking about our ex and thinking about ourselves as independent beings and therefore our destiny becomes one of multiplicity not mm. one of singularity because like in all of those binary relationships you are one unit, they're one unit Māori is not one unit. Māori is a universe. So it's, um, oh, oh, Choi, thanks. I'm so nervous. <laughs> Trying hard not to sell angry. Um, <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I have to take my shoes off. But um, <laughs> it's about this kind of multiplicity. 
And while I don't know what that looks like if it's rebuilt an institution, maybe an institution is not the destination, but I'm far more interested in just opening up that potentiality. Mm. And I believe that Māori working within the system are actually doing it all the time, these little mini-universes that are blowing up in their mahi. Mm. And the trick for us is how to have that mini-universe overtake and um, sort of suture this colonial present into that big potentiality. Now, I'm sounding very abstract and wankerish, and I'm very sorry. I kind of go into that space, but I believe this is where a lot of this corridor is. It's about potentiality, and it's about that destiny that, were, that was in front of our tūpuna before colonisation and forced a framework on us that limited us. So biculturalism for me is, it, it, it is a, like a, a, it's the permit <laughs> that uh, the colonisers have said, right, this, this gives us permission to work together. But I, I always find that it, it's still confining me back to, that's my ex and this is me. Um, but it's necessary, I think. Institutionally, the promise of biculturalism, for me anyway, gives me some assurance that I will not be covered up and silenced, or, well, that's not possible to me, but I will not be covered up. Um, so, my point is, Caller, um, <laughs> I, I do think some of that stuff is possible around creating a new entity or a new way of these kinds of institutions to share knowledge with the world. But I do think there needs to be that reorientation of power. Um, and if institutions like mine, like this, want to have that, then it's increasing the representation and giving up the power. Mm. And then as you give up the power, have more agents working within you um, submit to the fact that they want to change the subterranean levels and the above ground levels as well. And it's not going to be comfortable. It's not comfortable for us either. Um, but I, if you want the word decol, if you want the word indigenization, and if you want modification, that is what you have to do. But I don't know what that looks like, a board level or building or staff structure. I don't know what that looks like yet. Well, I think you described it. It's about sharing power. And that's where a lot of these aspirations either win or die, you know, and how the power is shared in achieving it. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's crucial and it's, you know, if we talk about anything that's colonising, the way in which power is not shared is the one thing that reminds us of that relationship every day. So, you know, the radical thing and the, the, the future-focused thing is how we share power to, to um, see those outcomes. It's, uh, it's interesting you talk about the power thing as well and those structures. So there is uh, a new gallery being built currently, Wairau Māori Art Gallery in Whangarei. It sits within the Huntavasa Centre. Already a conflict exists because of that. Um, it's been led by a Māori board um, who are trying to get it off the ground. Um, and it's been many years of struggle, as Nigel will know, because he's been on that board and for a long time. And he knows too now. Um, but <laughs> I think it's been interesting in this last little while to talk about uh, agency 
Um, so we're, we're a bunch of like-minded individuals that have our people at the heart of the project, which is getting this gallery to exist. Um, by Māori, for Māori, that, that's kind of the byline that we've been using. Um, but it's constantly coming up against that kind of idea of agency. We sit within a, uh, an Austrian uh, structure uh, governed by another board which is also largely Pākehā in its approach, but we're still trying to maintain that agency. So that struggle that you're talking about doesn't disappear just because you've got a whole lot of Māori involved um, and you've got the right kind of mandate to start with. I'm kind of interested to get a sense of, um, I guess, if, if there's examples that you're aware of where that sort of agency has been able to move forward, that where there has been agency. Like, because we have been talking very abstractly around these yeah. ideas. Yeah. Well, let's start with the Hundavasa Art Centre. Um, so the aspiration to have the Wairau Māori Art Gallery on the ground floor of the Hundavasa Art Centre was actually the Hundafasa Trust in Austria. So that was their initiative. And their specification on that happening was that Māori had to have a presence in the building. So there is agency there, and there is this desire to want to work collaboratively. And that was one of the reasons that that has been initiated. Um, the Whangarei Art Museum on one side is a different conversation. Um, but the stipulations of having the centre was on those on that proviso. So um, Māori are very much part of that conversation, and we uh, occupy the wider Māori Art Gallery occupies the ground floor section of the Hundavasa Art Centre. But the Hundavasa um, Trust or the wider the Whangarei Art Museum don't dictate what takes place in that space. We do, as the trust. So you know it's it's important to understand what. You know, sovereign structures might look like, and how we might operate in in those those ways of realizing what we want to do. But also, you, you don't work, you don't live in this game without compromise, negotiation, and understanding how to work collaboratively. The the challenge, as I see it, is demanding how that collaboration works equally, um, because Māori are often going above and beyond and leading it and asking the partner to come along, dragging them along sometimes, to walk with us in realising the project. And that's exhausting, because we can't lead it and drag you along at the same time. Um, and that's, that's a lot of people's experience in this room. Um, so, you know, it's, it's actually about uh, demanding that we work collaboratively and what that might really look like and mean. And... Um, you know, leave us the centre, we'll, we'll tell you what it looks like, just like the exhibition in Auckland. I'll tell you what it's going to look like, but just give us the mandate to do that. Give us the ability to, to show you what it could be and what it could manifest as. Um, again, trust, power sharing, uh, ownership of what collaboration means. To me, it comes back to those really important, um, succinct uh, concepts and statements. And go. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like I like looking to um, mahi that's ha happening outside of my sector. So I, I this is where Nigel and I are kind of on different poles because um, I don't consider myself a Maori art curator. 
working with the uh, art history con uh, framework. Oh, I don't either. Oh, it's, it actually scares me. <laughs> it scares me. Um, but I also, I don't see myself as like tūturu ho, you know, ho hunu going onto the mountain like a tōhunga style taonga curator either. So I kind of oscillate within the middle. And um, I'm a little bit non-compliant even in the Māori world. Um, I don't like, the confinement is, is I, I don't like it. I don't like being told that I have to operate in this singular Māori box and I don't like being told I have to operate in a bicultural singular Māori box. So I just like free-range chooking. So in that regard, there is no real pattern I see in my sector that I can go, well, that's what I want to go. I like looking in um, Māori endeavours outside, and I, I particularly look to Hawara, because I was raised, my mother is, has been working in Hawara Māori or um, health sector for, um, since I was a baby. And I've watched the struggles, and recently she's led a treaty claim, one of the first modern treaty claims. Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, and um, her stuff is really inspiring to me because it's this idea of uh, I mean, nobody's going to die if I don't do my work properly, eh? But that is in my mother's sector. You know, Māori people are dying, and she's trying to make it better. So I look at her career trajectory and working from within Tauranga Hospital as the manager of Te Puna Hauda, the Māori Health Unit. And then at the 20-year point, she got hōha with it and decided to break out and create her own, go into a, a PHO and lead that primary health organisation. Now one of the few PHOs that exists. Um, and the journey that her and her team have taken to create this Māori organisation, working within the strictures of the, um, of the health sector within Aotearoa and still managing to keep it Māori. <laughs> and one of the things that's been really interesting is she looks to other Indigenous groups, so travelled to Alaska and looked at what the Alaskan people are doing to look after their, um, their whānau and bringing those methodologies. So you start to have this exchange, this knowledge exchange, happening outside of colonial structures, this sort of um, transmission, positive transmission that's happening. And that's it's like, well, that's a good little network. That's a good pattern. Mm. So you wouldn't say that she's, you know, it's not just all about rongoa and karakia and her organisation, although they do look to those as well. It's also about clinical practice and um, accountabilities and all that kind of stuff. But she's still bringing in all of this wholeness from Indigenous practices and Indigenous being, not always looking back to mainstream. That, for me, is a much more interesting thing to consider, a way to consider. Um, but what's there is that it's Māori-led, it's Māori-governed, it's Māori-staffed. Pākehā working in there too, working within a Māori framework. And um, so you've got all those checkpoints in there, those safety valves that are ensuring that it's continuing to operate within this Māori worldview or worldviews. Because my mother's not very compliant either. <laughs> so um, that's where I find it really interesting. I like looking at those models. And I reckon there would be equivalent models within um, people practising in law, so our Māori law whānau. Um, they'll be all over the place. Emer the emerging scientists, Māori scientists, 
the rise of Mātauranga Māori, the fact that the Royal Society is beginning to embrace and give a platform to Mātauranga Māori is astounding. So there are these things that are starting to bubble and starting to rise up and reaching to each other to connect. And I'm really, really interested if the art, our art world and our museum world start to do that as well, which actually they already are, um, that convergence. Um, I don't even know if I just answered that. And yes, I went into did. the super abstract space again. But yeah, I look to outside sectors and Hawara is a really amazing model. And you should follow Gabrielle's blog, um, her Twitter because she does some great summaries of that, of that mahi. Um, and we, did, we had a, um, a webinar session, a Zoom session called Decolonising Your Puku uh, recently as part of uh, another exhibition we had from the ground up. And some of those same initiatives were coming through, mm. all Māori-led um, and all related to a te ao Māori framework. Mm. Um, just uh, ticking the box there. <laughs> uh, I also uh, I just wanted to go back to the power-sharing thing as well because a, a lot of the, the kind of institutions we talk about um, have leadership and we've all been involved in leadership positions and currently are. Um, but there's also some amazing leadership in the room as well. We've got Ruben, Tanya, Kura, we, who's popped out the back, might have got too hot. Um, uh, there's some amazing people that are in leadership positions uh, across multiple sectors. Uh, do we need more of that? Will that make a, a significant shift? Is it just about that? Um, no, it's not just about that. I think it's about... You know, let's just look at the... We've got three Māori directors of art institutions in the country. I think it's three at the moment. Um, and Ruben Friend at um, Pataka, yourself here at the Dows, and Hirani at Tutuhi. So you could argue we've never been, we've never been in a better position in terms of some of that leadership. Um, and you're all doing amazing work. And not to mention the leadership we have in education. So I think it's rich. I think it's there. I think, um, you know, we, we, we can manifest the futures we want to see in those spaces. And I know I, found, I might sound quite evangelical and overly, um, you know, abstract as well, but I, I, this is where I'm at at the moment. I don't, I see everything through a Māori worldview and lens, so I don't have to, I don't feel I have to justify the lens. I'm here to share what the lens is about and, um, and ask you to come along with me and how we can see that uniquely here. And I feel the same about our mighty leadership across the board, is that there's an opportunity. Um, some are being taken and some are uh, a latent that could offer even wider um, possibility in that space. So it's... To me, it's an exciting time, and it's an exciting, I suppose, precipice that we're that we're on and um, sitting in at the moment of change, of um, motivated change, and demanding change, and seeing change, and being part of it. So, um, you know, sometimes we need to take ourselves out of our institutional bubble and blue sky what we think and want that to be and then um, you know make that our template and road road map for back in the institution because we can it can be what we want it to be and once we see it that way it's quite liberating and exciting so poor way 
Oh, I must be the cynical one in the family. Um. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know, though, how, how you've found that transition going into leadership, because you'd kind of talked about that. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was probably a little bit Pollyanna. I'm deeply grateful. Thank you, Courtney. I'm deeply grateful to be able to go into the position I'm in now. So I'm the Director of Audience Insights at Te Papa. So I look after all of the public-facing channels look after learning, marketing and comms, exhibition design, public programs, um, oh God, please, you know, audience insights, programming, <laughs> hey Gail. Um, I have about seven teams that worked me. Um, and it was, when I was going through the recruitment process for it, um, this is my, my very messy way, started freaking out a little bit about it. Um, going, how can I move from being head of Mātauranga Māori where I had a very clear remit, a very clear banner, um, and move into a space that had never been occupied by a Māori person before. Um, and wanting to operate consciously as a Māori person in that role. Um, not sure what that actually means, but, you know. So I'll just bring what I was trying to do in Mātauranga Māori and just take it up to that level and be all good and they'll all respond because I've been working with them long enough. And um, it's been really interesting... One, I don't think I've quite made the mental leap yet um, about what, what it means to be leading non-Māori teams and asking for more Māori outcomes in our work and then also transmitting that out to the teams that are outside of my management and trying to influence, and influence that. I went from probably quite a naive space, the bubble, so to speak, from like Māori, 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 um, to... Um, this is going to be a great future. <laughs> you should contemplate embracing this. This is going to be really good for you. So um, making that leap, and when you get a pushback going, nah, not today, thank you. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so dealing with trying to master my emotions in that space, because my expectations are huge. I have expectations. I have come from a position that is all about Māori is good for you. <laughs> Creating more space for Māori participation and leadership is good for you. Um, but the resistance comes in not like a Ku Klux Klan way, like, you know, bugger off, Māori woman. It is more <laughs> around, that's hard. What you're presenting to me is scary. I don't know how to do it. I've got some stuff I've got to do. I'll talk to you next year. Um, yeah, or... I don't know how to achieve that. So I'm just going to freak out for a little while and then I'm going to ignore you. And so I sit here and get more and more frustrated. So I'm trying to deal with that. I'm sorry to turn you into a therapy circle. So I'm right in the middle of it. Um, but what I have figured out, which is what I knew, what was just how I've intuitively worked, is that navigating your way through these things, these obstacles or these challenges, is a series of tactical changes at each point. Change tactic, change tactic, change tactic. It's never a straight line. Um, but my impatience is, is such that I just want to zoom through all the fences. Um, so this is where the uncomfortable part is. I don't know if that's actually decolonisation. It might be more to do maybe with my, my personality. But um, it is the idea of trying to introduce what I would hope is not just singular, a singular position or the, about Māori, you know, and not, there's no singular Māori worldview that I'm trying to introduce, 
but it's about trying to create a system that's a little bit more porous and a little bit less rigid and a little bit more able to encompass other ways of being. Because my whole belief is that if Māori stuff becomes, it flows through the structures of a museum system, then all of the cultures will be able to flow through. Um, it won't be just a process of negotiate, accept, move. Negotiate, don't accept, sideways. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm hoping to get. But maybe we're thinking about the same thing. It's just that are. I'm a little bit more... Um, uh, You're just skinning the cat frustrated. differently. That's yeah, it. yeah. Because I, I do... I wouldn't have worked in museum, in, the, in my museum, because I only worked in that museum. Um, I wouldn't have worked in a museum for this long if I didn't, one, believe in the mahi. Uh, and if I didn't believe in what the mahi could do for te ao Māori. But I don't want to create te papa as a marae. You know what I mean? It is not a Māori thing. It's not a Māori structure. I do want it, though, to be more useful to Māori. So it's not about having cre recreating it in this beautiful Māori kākahu. And all of a sudden, shung, te papa is um, te papa tungarerewa. Um, it, it is more about just making it useful to my people. Um, and at the moment, it's um, useful because of the virtues of individuals who are opening the door or opening the window of where they are. Mm. Um, I've had a talk with Courtney here as well about what, what would be the things that I want to see out of Te Papa in my tenure as a director. And I think it would be that the system authors good outcomes for my people it doesn't rely on individuals authoring the good outcomes for my people. Because I want to be safe in the knowledge that I walk out, somebody replaces me, and they continue to work towards making good outcomes for our people because the system is demanding it. Um, right now, I think I walk away, somebody of the more Kelburn, Kandala, Kaurori persuasion enters into my space, and the doors all shut, the windows all shut. So, because it, it still relies on the efforts of individuals. Mm. And it still may shut. You know, I think that's the other thing we can't rely on in this game is to think uh, that this is not an ongoing conversation and challenge that we have to keep meeting, you know, and discussing and engaging with. It doesn't end because cool, you know. We got to the end of that, yay, we're all great. You know, I feel like it's a living breathing conversation about culture, so it should be something we're constantly revisiting, uh, refining, um, checking in with. And, yeah, I just feel like, um, I just think, let's start opening those doors, those windows, and those aspirations for what we want to do and have a go. Mm -hmm. What's the worst that could happen, you know? Or it could, you could achieve it, you know? Let's let's be more ambitious about that in that space and and um, own it, own it up here, so that we can manifest it and own it in reality. And I'm not just talking about this. I'm talking about um, I'm talking about in general. You know, that's something we should be doing more often, mm. and stop being apologetic about it. Mm. What's good for Māori is good for everybody, yeah. and I think um, we forget that a lot of the time. I think it's it's also fair to say as well, I've forgotten what my next question is, <laughs> but I think it's also fair to say that 
even when you're in these positions, you're not, you can't represent the expectations of everybody. You can only do what you can do. And I think if, if your mandate is to open a door or a window or whatever opening you're going to open, um, then that's great. That's a step forward and that's that ongoing conversation and negotiation you're talking about. But if the, the mandate is that you're going to try and be everything to everyone, I think you will fail. Mm. I don't think you can do those things. Mm. So, um, and you do get a lot of feedback, particularly when you're in a position of authority or leadership. You get a lot of feedback about why you're not uh, responding to this group or this mandate or this particular thing. Why aren't you working at this level? And it's because you can't achieve all of those things. Um, so I kind of total call what both of you have said because um, I constantly find myself in those positions where I'm having to think about what's good for Māori, but which Māori? Um, mm. What's good for the institution? You're wearing a lot of hats at the same time. So um, it's fair to say that you have to be uh, your own person in these positions. So sometimes it is the individual pushing that barrow mm. because you have to. Um, and I think it's, it's a really great aspiration to think about the system being open to all of that. Uh, but I think we, well, certainly from my perspective, we're a long way off. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, if you're the director, yes. this is the thing. It's like, where do we, how do we break this down? How do we, when and how is it time to do that? And if, if we can't do that now, then when? So, you know, I'm sending that out to all of us to think about um, that there's no time like now to, to change the paradigm or to mm. refine it and to um, see it differently. Okay, I, can, I should also say that I'm not in an institution at the moment, so I can speak a lot more freer than, than most of us. <laughs> and I don't deny that's part of, you know, my, um, my approach and my, my very enthusiastic approach at the moment. But, you know, there comes some clarity with that. Um, as well, which is really nice to be able to share from that point of view today, yeah. Cool. Um, I'm going to, we will be having some questions shortly, very shortly, but I've got a slightly left field question which is less about institutions and more about kind of the cultural sector as a whole. Um, so as we know, the, the art world nationally and internationally um, seems to have embraced to some degree this idea of cancel culture, which has come through a lot through social media, but also through lots of other uh, platforms and, and ways. Um, and they often use cultural misrepresentation as the catalyst to start that conversation about cancelling this or that person, place, project, whatever it is. Do you think it's possible for Māori to reclaim that narrative? Because it's often about cultural misrepresentation, those conversations start. Yeah, and I think often they're about um, muzzling the conversation as opposed to having it. So, um, because that makes people feel comfortable in the status quo. So, you know, we have to be, a, we've got to be wise to the politic of some of this bullshit. And, and, you know, I mean, some of you have been in this game for so long, it's just ridiculous to even try and have this conversation, they could have. <laughs> but the, the, the fact remains that, you know, um, I don't think we should be deterred by, by, the, by you know, the, the popular norms of the day if they are not useful, helpful, 
or actually are just there to sort of muzzle us. No thanks, I'm not buying into any of that. Um, I don't know, Andak, you need to tell me that question again because I don't really get it. <laughs> uh, so so uh, what I was saying was that a lot of the cancel culture currently, which is, uh, it's been happening internationally as well where uh, directors have been removed from their positions in cultural institutions because they're, they haven't represented oh. other cultures um, appropriately or um, enough, I guess. Uh, but in New Zealand, obviously, we've had some significant um, uh, situations. Uh, Mercy Pitches would be one of those, where there's been a lot of calling out of people um, based on a project that was termed culturally misrepresentative or or racist. Um, mm -hmm. okay. And whether we yeah. can we we as a as a cultural group can change that narrative because often it's about us not for us. Well, often we're subsumed into the critique of it and I think we just have to be, um, you know, it can work in reverse as well in ways to sort of uh, safeguard the status quo and, and really conservative agendas. So um, I, I think we, you know, if any conversation doesn't serve you, you shouldn't be engaging in it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not your conversation, then, you know, let's find the ones that we do want to have. Um, it's as simple as that. Let's not let Facebook tell us what the gender is. It's like, to me, that's just, it's ridiculous. Anyway, I've said my bit. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I, get, I get a bit worried about the word cancel culture because I see that as a terminology that's kind of emerged more out of conservative groups than uh, I think the groups I might feel more in sympathy with. I think, I reckon the art galleries and museums are OG cancel culture. <laughs> They have decided for generations who gets listened to and who doesn't, who is valued and who isn't, who's selected and who's not, who's in, who's out. Um, so I, I, I think there has, it has been a privilege of the establishment to cancel things that are not considered to be palatable. It's just interesting with the kind of um, explosion of the kind of multi-vocality that is in social media where um, movements can begin that are probably grabbing um, with that same power, because uh, it's all about critical mass, truly, eh? Um, I think, yeah, I'm not a fan of it. Of, um, uh, I've only had very um, brief skirmishes with people who are, not cancel culture, but are a bit angry at what I might have done. Um, and I would just find that it's part of it. But the whole notion of directors being removed and uh, overseas, like I look at the couple of things that have happened, like in Canada, I think, where directors who had been overseeing and perpetuating very racist and violent cultures within their staff body have finally been called out by staff who have taken um, advantage of social media and said, this is happening. Um, and they have finally been removed, but it makes you think, well, how long has it been where you've been doing that before somebody decided to do that campaign? Um, and how many people have suffered as a result? So I think it is, it's kind of like alcohol, it's a poison where you apply, <laughs> if you apply it too much, it will probably toxify your system. Mm. But um, I do see what happened in Canada as a necessary mm. thing. I think it's happened twice there now. Um, yeah, I do think it's one of those 
things where citizens, people who have a device or have a platform, use it, and sometimes it is used terribly. But same instance, institutions have been using that power terribly themselves. So either everybody just is rendered on the same playing field and the ability to cancel something out is completely taken away from everyone, um, or there is more call to critique those movements and to actually have it as a dialogue, which I think is what Nigel was saying as well, turn it into something that's a little bit more sophisticated rather than um, pitchforks and whatnot. Mm. I don't think that's what you're yeah. yeah, just yeah. more empowering. It's like, I don't want to be in this game for another 20 years, you know, going on a treadmill doing the same crap, trying to solve the same challenge. If we're not moving forward, then what's the point? So, yeah. um, you know, we've... I've, We've got limited time in this game, so I want mm. it to be worthwhile and it to be of use and to make a contribution. And whatever that might be, um, I'm satisfied with that being the, um, the, the aim. Mm. A. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just having more. More is more, eh? Like, um, uh, so, I mean, being some mates, we wrote a book about protest objects, right? Because we've been collecting stuff for ages and, yeah, yeah let's do some stuff. Um, let's put it out because we thought, oh, this would be quite useful. Um, but there were some who were very angry that it was project-focused, uh, object-focused and not like the encyclopedia of protests, you know, like the DNZB of activism, which we had said, well, that's not possible. We can't do that. Um, but what, what, what my heart was hearing once I got over that hurt, what my heart was hearing was a hunger for more mm. uh, narratives to come out that are not just that one shot out the gate and it happened to be just about objects because three curators decided to talk about stuff that they were collecting. Um, and that's where it, where it is, eh? So many people pin their hopes mm. on that one outing because that is the one outing and it will not serve everybody so you're left with the hurt and the anger and directed at the person who's generated it or the object, the pro project itself and go, how dare you not live up to what I need to be said in the world? And I hear the hurt because it's about why am I not, why is my experience not been out there? So I would like to see more people generating so that when we had put out the project, the object book, uh, protest book, there were actually lots and lots of voices talking about this history because it's the histories of protest, not just this one singular outing. Mm. So that's, again, part of, I think, cancel stuff comes out of hurt and why am I not being valued? Mm. Why mm. am I not being heard? I don't think you'll... Because yeah, I think there are some actual dickheads out there, though, who are just being real mean. So it's not all just... They're everywhere. So they're I, think, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they're just trolly. But, um, and would rather throw rocks in the ring rather than get on themselves. But um, I still think there is also a hunger to hear more about my experience or experiences that feel familiar to me. Mm. And especially for Māori and Pacific and anybody who was not of the, um, the customary template. Um, where am I in this, mm. in this project? Where am I in what you're talking about? Yeah, but, mm. but I also think they are out there. These these projects are there. These are there are curators who are doing this stuff. Um, 
So maybe we just don't have this wonderful way to bind it all together. So yeah. People understand that they're there. And I think part of the critique and the criticism is uh, about the success of what you've just done, because you've highlighted uh, there's a group that feels left out. Well, great. Here, here you go. We've done it. You go and do that chapter that needs to be written. So sometimes it's the the prompt that we need to to tell our people to get on with the work of doing what we all know needs to be done. And you know we don't we don't we can't do it all ourselves, but we can be part collectively of seeing that change and doing it. We might write a support letter so they can get their funding. We might help them um, shadow them in, in curating the show, whatever. But we can support in other ways. So I think we've got to see our agency a bit more dynamically and what we can offer and do collectively and see the agency and all your colleagues. Get them to get off their backsides and go do a project to write about that <coughs> artist or to do that, that piece of work because sometimes that's the prompt that they need. Um, I appreciate that we've all been sitting here for an hour and it's been <laughs> fascinating. Um, and I know it's all very hot for those people that are in the room or at home that might still be in bed. Um, I have no some. Um, so we're going to take some questions now. I'm significantly looking at people, and I do realise it's really warm in here. I don't know if we can do anything about that. Uh, so Felix and Isabel are going to bring you a mic, so don't try and shout them out. Who has questions? Kuda, down here in the front. Here comes your mic. Testing. I thought I'd, I need to say something because I had a relation from the north kick me in the butt to say something. Um, and then I think that what we've got to try and do with toy to toy order, and I haven't seen it yet, but I anticipate that it is an uh, exhibition that's uh, really important for us going forward. And um, we shouldn't get distracted by um, uh, and prevented from talking about its 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 significance by what um, what the institution is going through now. So I'm I think what I'm I'm trying to say is to please make sure that we get the dialogue going forward that we don't get distracted from talking our narratives mm -hmm. and. Um, and uh, we, we, we preserve a space in ourselves to, we have, you're right, uh, Nigel, we have to own it as artists, as curators, as Māori, whatever, wherever we are, and um, acknowledge that it's a temporary space. Yeah. If, we, if we let that short space of time go by, we're going to lose, you know, the totality of the impact of, of this exhibition. Kura, kura, I totally agree with you. That's why we'll be talking next week about that. <laughs> Does anyone have any other questions? Down the back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tēnā koutou, nā mihinui for all your kōrero. It was amazing. Um, this is more for Puwai. I was just wondering about when you were talking about new museology and like the way that's like decals getting sucked into that as an idea and I was wondering if there's any examples from maybe overseas or here about resistance to that that you could talk about 
resistance to the like decal being the main thing in new museology? Because oh. like, you seem to not be a fan. Uh, um, I, 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 don't, I think it's growing. The critical response to decolonisation being becoming part of, especially overseas. I think I see this more in overseas museums than in Aotearoa. Uh, but um, this idea of decolonisation becoming the next stage of mu new museology, and you see it like pit rivers and. I don't know about the BM, I think it's a big black hole, but um, certain museums have started to adopt what they consider to be decolonizing efforts. One of the uncomfortable things about being an indigenous person from here, commenting on that, is that, one, do you have indigenous people who can actually speak yeah. <laughs> to that themselves? I don't want to be crossing anybody's lane. But also, for things that are generated out of Europe, I'm incredibly skeptical about like, how is it possible to decolonize institutions in, in Europe when you are basically founded on the overt exploitation of different countries across the world? Um, so sometimes I get very skeptical that decol has been used as a smokescreen to just create a different, friendlier style of museology. It's not decol. Bringing in one indigenous artist to work on one piece of your gallery and then leave it there it's not decolonizing, it's ornamenting. So, um, but I don't, I didn't see a lot of people commenting in this and critiquing it to this level because I think there was a great degree of hope that museums could be decoled. Um, the only person who I really came across was um, a Muslim woman in the UK whose name is blanking me at the moment, where her experience of working in a um, Birmingham Museum, I think, showed, proved to her that it was not possible. So there, there are certain agents on the ground who are saying what I'm kind of saying overseas, but that, that hasn't been enough to stop the bulldozing <laughs> enthusiasm of different organisations. And I think it's more like the really old school establishment ones. Um, yeah, so... I'm just I'm I'm skeptical that decol gets used in that way, and I'm also skeptical when decol has been led by a colonial voice. Um, I don't believe that's decoling at all. Mm. Um, that's just colonization. You're just continuing that of the the way of your ancestors, man. Um, so yeah, I am yet to see those significant um, changes, but. Again, it's really hard because I'm not over there. It's like um, you never quite know what's happening in the whare. Um, you don't know the battles that are happening in the whare. Um, so, and a lot of the time we hear stuff that's coming from, you know, the, the banner, the executive, the director. Yeah. What do you, what do you know? Well, I just think, too, that, you know, we forget that we're actually a bit further down that path here. And we engaged in that work nearly 20, 30 years ago. I'm not saying we're anywhere finished, but we're in the throes of understanding that differently. Yeah. yeah. So it's always really starkly surprising, and it shouldn't be when I go overseas and see where they're at. I feel like I'm editing myself a lot, and it's the things you're not telling them because you just think this is, they're not even, they're not there yet. Yeah. They don't know, they're not going to know how to understand this bit of information. And I know that might sound, condescending but it's it, it gets quite tricky 
and um, it's quite humbling at the same time because you see your colleagues and how they're trying to forge space in those those institutions in ways that you saw your you know your mentor do or someone that you've been uh, or yourself do here and um, it's it's an eye opener and um, it's also really frustrating because I don't like being in those forums because you feel like you just got to do that or you got to speak up and well they want you to be the messy rupture one. the room they want you to be the <laughs> you, they want you to be the angry messy brown person on the panel um, just to don't have, do it yeah not to do master <laughs> my emotions but they want you to be the agent provocateur yeah, yeah. when you go so I, I I'm also uh, I don't like going to overseas engagements unless I understand that there are other people who are operating in the same framework as me. Yeah. Otherwise, that's nonsense. Well, you feel like the captured savage. It's like, oh my god. It's same terrible. thing here, though. I get you know, invitate. There are there are a lot of non-Maori who um, are leading things that are, I believe Maori should be leading. Mm. So, heiahara up overseas. I think we got to be looking here. Mm. Um, that. Uh, Māori who, people who understand what it is to be colonised should be leading the decolonial conversation. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I was like, I, I had some, oh, I'm not going to drop words because Carl said, don't call anybody out. But um, there was, um, there were, you know, I was in a, I accidentally turned up in a decolonisation workshop. What the hell is this? Because I, I thought I was going in to greet some visitors, and then it turned out I had to talk to them. And then um, the person leading it, very nice, but I think German lady. And um, yeah, we're here to talk about decolonizing. Do you know what it's like to be colonized? Because until you understand that, um, this is all very meaningless. <laughs> um, and I got very hoha, but I was too polite to withdraw myself because I was trying to be a good monarchy Māori. But um, that, that stuff to me is really problematic. And um, I suppose we could do the calling out. I could post their name all over, or I could just radical refusal and stop answering the emails and invitations. So I think there are ways of... Well, the other thing that we do as colleagues in Whanaunga is we share our experiences, because there's power in sharing those experiences so that we don't have to make the mistakes or get look out for the pitfalls that our, our colleagues have had to endure. And um, there's real, um, uh, uh, mana in, in seeing yourself and your colleagues collected in that way. And um, it's exciting to do that. And I don't see myself, I don't see it any other way. If someone's not a colleague, then they're not in that circle. Because I value that circle and what it offers me. I'll probably be a lot more toe if I adopt how you operate, cousin. <laughs> we'll talk later. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got some other questions. Thank you for that question, because that went a long way. Uh, Raymond, do you still want to ask us? No, you've moved on. Okay. <laughs> Kia ora. Gina. Uh, Gina. 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 You know, all of us involved in in the arts and have that Māori experience of of kind of battling the colonising forces of institutions. You know, you expend so much energy doing that. Do you see, like, I've had this idea for a while, and other people obviously too. That, like, if you sidestep it and set up a totally Māori-run institution, whether it's a gallery, it has performance space, like it's built from the ground up. 
with Māori, for Māori, by Māori, do you see that as a possibility, as an aspiration? Do you see any benefits in that? Um, yes and no so um, we need to be everywhere mm. we deserve to be in these spaces mm. and these spaces need to be to be um, re really uh, robustly bicultural mm. whatever we determine that to be mm. and Māori need to um, feel comfortable, safe and um, have a, a, a place and position of authority and mandate um, as, as, as everyone else does, mm. but perhaps uniquely differently to everyone else. Mm. And we need them in both, because we live in both. We exist all across the spectrum. And mm. when I hear, uh, <laughs> I, love the, I love the idea of Māori run, Māori, you know, for Māori by Māori, and I'm totally for that, or else I wouldn't be on the Wairau Māori Art Gallery Trust. Um, but I'm also about, you know, we can be the catalyst, we can be the drivers, you get behind and we'll show you where we're going to go. And, you know, that's about Māori authority telling us and leading a, a, our future. Um, but that's, that's just as taxing as being in, the, in the, the colonial institution because you have to lead it from go to woe. And, that, you know, that takes funding, that takes resource, that takes a lot of... Um, a lot of manpower where people are usually doing it on a voluntary basis in this one, in the Mighty Run space. Um, and, you know, uh, from my experience, um, it's, I've, I've sort of come here to the middle and say, no, no, we can occupy both. And I'm interested in reconfiguring the middle mm. to be more um, mm. uh, conducive for us. Mm. What's good for us is good for everybody. Mm. Yeah, I listened to Lady Tudeti Moxham talking recently um, at a, a haora presentation and she did a presentation about her um, hesitations with the way that the treaty was interpreted through the principles participation protection partnership and how limiting they were and she wanted us to more interrogate the idea of the principle of options which mm. is that maori have um, just as nigel was saying Mana motuhake is not about just going through one singular door to one singular destination, you know. It's like the, like, like the wānanga that exist now, our three wānanga. They exist alongside the universities and all of them are serving Māori because they are giving options. And um, I think this is what Māori are aspiring for. It's not to go into... Mana motuhake, my interpretation, or tironanga tiratanga, is not about being able to choose the singular Māori path. It's about being Māori and going on any path I want. And having my, my āhuatanga, my tikanga, my whakapapa respected on those mm. paths. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm much more about the multiplicity. I, I like the messiness. I don't like just one cruise ship for all. He waka eke noa. No, I, I, like, I like the idea of being able to depart on any vessel I want, but that I take who mm. I am with me. Yeah. And that when I'm on that vessel, I am going to be respected. So I'm um, not invisibilised. Mm. I think that's, yeah, we need to be everywhere. We need to be in the organisations like this, like how Carla's, like my whole earlier thing about um, blow them up. Um, that's only if you want to recreate something new. But I don't, I don't say that in that we abandon them because I think they still do good work. Te Papa infuriates me, but I still think it does good work. 
Um, sometimes, no. no. <laughs> it does. There are good people working in there doing amazing stuff. And to abandon ship is not what I want. But what I want is that this, the process and the system is recognising us. Um, and it's not all competitive. So, yeah, I like mm. options. Yeah, options. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it, and you've been so generous in offering your um, learnt what you've experienced. My question is: We've looked at uh, the galleries from the institution side. I guess we're all here today because, as an audience, there's a willingness to embrace it. I wondered what role the artists play in it. Nice question. Um, yeah, I think I think um, they're pivotal. They're pivotal and, um, you know, that exhibition, Toy 2, was all about, all about them, to be honest. Um, and it's been 20 years since any institution has looked at uh, the importance of contemporary Māori art through a survey show and what's happened in 20 years. Who are the artists? What are the ideas and themes? And what's happened to Māori art in the process, you know? I think it's largely gone to ground and it's become very disparate conversation and I'm someone who's very much engaged in the art sector, Māori art sector and I know myself and my colleagues were concerned about that so the show was actually about putting them back at the forefront and at the centre and saying um, this and these artists and their stories are important so for me um, it was a nice reminder that the artists are what it's about and, you know, as a curator, it's finding that balance of orchestrating, creating, and then stepping back. Just step back and let them and their work do, do the rest. So, um, to me, uh, it's a real privileged role to, to sort of um, allow their agency to come through in, in these institutions. And, you know, if you're clever, you know when to get back and let the let the work do that. Let the artists take over and do the talking. And it's, I, th I think also, I'm going to jump in here, taking off my facilitator hat. Um, I mean, we don't exist without artists. So every time we have an opening here at the Dows, we acknowledge the artists first, um, because they're the only reason an institution like this exists. Uh, they're the only reason we have a collection. They're the only reason we write books. They're the only reason we have public programs. So I think. It's, um, it's easy because the structure and the institutions we have, and this is, Māori, uh, this is artists across the gamut of practices and everything. Um, if, if we forget about those people in the mix, then we're, we're kind of self-perpetuating and, and we're sort of colonising artists to a yeah. degree as well. So I feel very strongly that the artists are always at the forefront of those conversations, mm. but it's very, it does become very difficult when you're in an institutional structure to keep that at the forefront. It does become a real battle, I think. I'm just going to add too, I think sometimes uh, artists have certain agendas and sort of certain specific topics that they've looked at over the course of their life, and um, what better way to talk about an uncomfortable issue then letting that artist take centre stage and illuminate it through their work and allow them to be the catalyst for us to have the conversation. Um, you know, Emily Karaka does that in a beautiful way in the atrium 
at the Auckland Art Gallery and um, you know those are about um, we can have these diverse conversations and let the artists actually take the lead yeah um, so from my space um, working with creators and artists they each each time I might might have worked with one it changes my practice Probably one of the ones that is most documented is when I worked with um, James Webster to collect some of his karetao. And in our discussion around collecting the karetao, um, where by me collecting them, I would interrupt his practice because I'm taking things that he works with. And it would be the equivalent of taking his kids, you know. So we tossed around the idea of having the acquisition become a little bit more two-way, like a salon door, a saloon door. So um, created, actually, with Ruby's team, with, um, <laughs> with the loans team, acquisitions team, we created a, an understanding that James could come and take the karetao whenever he liked to perform with them, so I would not interrupt or disrupt their, their functional life with him. And after his passing, that then gets passed on to his descendants, and so on and so on. So I didn't want the acquisition to become a steel trap where I forever trapped his tamaiti, um, that it was um, more around probably co-ownership, I imagine, or just co-management. Uh, and that, I don't think that that was going to be that big a deal until I started talking about it. Um, because we've got... We've got uh, examples of that in Te Papa. When Te Papa was opened, um, there was a series of taonga commission called the Haumanu Taonga, and they were taonga pūro that were created for the collection but were, would be continued to be played. Um, so we're still there, but this is the first time we had agreed with an artist that we would have this formal agreement. And it's happened, I think, about three or four times. And other artists that have this agreement have also used them. So I think that's where... From where I'm sitting, because I, I don't, I'm saying, kind of don't know the space their cousin sits in, um, around taonga, collecting taonga, is questioning the permanence of the agreement. And then one day I expect that the whānau will say, we're not giving it back, we're holding on to it now, and we'll let it go. So, um, well, I'm hoping Isaac, who will be the head of the collection then, will let it go. So, um, yeah, that's why I think artists help challenge us. They help us understand that the things that we think are true and stable and solid are actually ephemeral because mm. they request a different reality. Mm. Yeah. Tracy. Oh, kia ora Nigel. It's good to see you again, my bro. Oh, kia ora. Yeah, um, <laughs> we had the privilege of um, having Nigel mediate our um, ceramic talk that... Um, or to do with um, what Kyle put together as it travelled the country. Uh, kia ora, Tracy Keith. Um, I think with hearing this is always um, learning base for me, um, especially about colonisation. Um, another way I sort of had an enlightenment about it is I was teaching with we at Puriru at uh, Tuananga Aotearoa, and um, I used to go to coffees to this little place in, in a wall, and a, a Dutch lady would make the coffee, and... You know, you'd hear them talking about different things and colonisation come up for some reason. And I was just listening and then 
they sort of looked at me, being, I suppose, being the token Māori in the room, which I'm probably as white as they are. But um, they, they were saying, well, you know, I don't understand it. I mean, we, we were invaded uh, by the Germans and, um, you know, we, we're okay. I mean, you know, they were doing that sort of talk. And I said to them, the thing is, is that your colonisers left. Our colonisers are still here and we're trying to work with that. So if you look at it that way, and I'm not, I'm not comparing uh, uh, the Europeans or the, the, the British that um, came here with the Nazis, because that's a whole other ballgame. That's terrible, that, what happened there. But the thing is, is that we are dealing within those, um, if you want to call them paradigms or that orthodoxy, um, and we are trying to make it work. And I think I really love what you guys are talking about because it is a big shift and it's looking good, you know. So, yeah, kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. Any other questions slash comments? We've got time for one more. Kia ora, uh, Nick from uh, Um Put away, within one, like post-COVID, you kind of mentioned pale panic and within <laughs> a talk, which I thought was really interesting in terms of the speed at which we had to, I guess, work within a triage sense versus, I guess, long-term multi-generational thinking. And I just, yeah, would like you to talk a little bit more around, I guess, how you felt the speed of response in that time versus multi-generational kind of... I'm not sure if... Yeah, this is a form question. Um, but, yeah, how, how you had to react in, a, in the COVID sense and what change kind of you managed to achieve within that versus, yeah. Um, is it over? I don't know. Post-go... Uh, so, yeah, pale panic. So I started talking about the stuff called pale panic. Um, <laughs> because of um, what I was starting to observe, which was, shit, money's going to be tight. Time is going to be tight. What's, what ballast is getting thrown off the locker? And I thought I started seeing far too much brown-tinted ballast getting chucked off um, because there was a re reversion back to the core. We've got to protect the core, the warp core of the ship. And um, my, my worry at that point was that initiatives that would have been in place to to help continue and reassure Māori presence and participation. Actually, anybody who wasn't part of the core would all of a sudden become um, superfluous, you know, um, excess to requirements, surplus to requirements. And so I started calling it pale panic to be deliberately provocative and be a little bit of a shit, um, which Surprise. was helped by the fact that I found a really great gif, a gif gif of... Um, Snow White swirling around in a panic. And what to do, what to do, what to do. Well, that's it. That's, that's, what it, that's where we're at. This is COVID. You're so naughty. I know. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't been fired. But, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it was... It was um, and I, I reckon some stuff has been thrown out. Uh, I can't... I, I won't say what those things are, but um, I reckon it did make stuff around cultural empowerment for Māori more difficult. Um, 
because we either got compressed, like everybody, and um, or minimised and reduced. Um, in that retraction that everybody feels. But when your presence, pre-retraction, is quite confined as it is, post-retraction feels intolerable. So um, what I am seeing is this flood of money and support going into the sector, Mātauranga Māori recovery and innovation and... Um, and that, that, that's great. One of my friends observed that if we don't have a cultural renaissance at this point, who the fuck are we? Um, but I, I still get concerned because that retraction and compression is still there and you can flood it with as much money as you want, but you're still dealing with a mm. base to deploy it, mm. which is still incredibly contracted. So um, I, I do believe it's a thing, but I think the stuff that's happened probably in the last year since I... Um, since I started talking about that, has maybe muddied the water a little bit, but I still think it's a thing. Um, but I think, like everything, the COVID recovery is going to be generational, including Māori endeavours that were in the system before COVID. It will take some time. But what I'm really interested in is the reinvention. Mm. Um, our Tupuna were really awesome at having something fly at you, retract and then reinvent Māori are specifically awesome at it. And um, I'm really interested to see what the reinvention is, um, whether it's around questioning the power structures that are that will kind of find themselves re-solidified, uh, whether people decide, I'm going into that position and I'm going to make it my own, or I'm going to step out of the system and I am going to critique it and I'm going to do my own thing. It's the reorganisation of agency mm. that I'm really fascinated about in this post-COVID um, era. The money is meaningless. It's probably more around where people um, end up positioning themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think just it's a tricky time, you know. People are... It's a tricky space. So just on its own, it's, 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 I don't think there's any givens about how people are dealing with it, and we shouldn't have any. But at the same time, it's created a whole range of different uh, opportunities or it's re, re, refined them. So for us, with um, Toy 2, we were originally going to have a Picasso and a Monet show over summer, which got squashed because of COVID. And my show got um, elevated and got more funding or got more real estate. So I was like, cool, let's do it. But it got pulled forward as well by three or four months, so um, got quite compacted. But it, it, you know, philosophically looking back on it now, it was, it was what needed to happen, and this is how the opportunity came about. So um, that is what that is the COVID situation, isn't it? It creates opportunities for us to seize or not, and to realign. And as long as we're up for that, and we feel we can make something of it, then great. But it is, it is, it, it will be interesting to see once, I don't, I think we're still in it, you know, this, let's all get vaccinated and figure out how we feel then, I think is what we really need to do, because we're not there yet, and um, uh, neither is the world, so let's figure that out first and then check in with ourselves about all that. But at the same time, right now, we can celebrate what's happening here, and I think 
um, you know, Toy 2 in that sort of way has been perfect to take that space for us to, to, to think about, to celebrate, and to own space. I don't know if mm. I, I hope with, that was, you got some stuff. Um, and Sorry, with those words of wisdom, we're going to wrap up because you guys have been very patient, 90 minutes. Um, yeah. But I want to thank both of you for sharing all your thoughts and being generous in the way you've talked about things. Um, and uh, hopefully everybody that's been here and on the live stream has got something to take away. And those sort of comments at the end about using this as an opportunity to take the next step is a perfect way to move on. Uh, so if you'll all join me in thanking our guests, Nigel. Thank you.